Uh, there is a scripture there in chapter 11 that talks about a time when everything will be peaceful on the earth. And I posited that there is a small part of that that occurs prior to Christ's return to be used as an example to the world of the things that shall be for a thousand years or a microcosm of the millennium to come. And right after he describes the change in the nature of the animals and so on, he says he will be set together a second time. And we have seen over and over throughout the scriptures that uh, God deals first with spiritual Israel, the church, and secondarily with physical Israel uh, and the rest of the world at a different time in a different way. So, the church has already been scattered and is about due to be gathered just ahead of the destruction that is to come on Israel again. And Jeremiah makes it very clear that they flee just ahead of it. That the financial collapse will come. And he says, gather yourselves there in Zephaniah 2 before the decree comes. So, he shows the financial collapse, a warning... And then he shows the Assyrian coming into the land there in Zephaniah. So it's uh, people will get here barely in time in order to be protected from what is coming on, first of all, this nation and then on the rest of the Israel and the rest of the world. Now there is more to that, and Isaiah addresses it again toward the end of the book of Isaiah in a much greater way with far more detail. And we'll get to that here pretty quick. But first of all, I want to uh, explain something that Worldwide taught that I find to be an error. And I uh, went through this, I think, in pretty good, pretty good detail in that series of nine sermons oh, back in the late 90s entitled uh, uh, How... How uh, it won't come. How exclusive is the church? Because someone had said that these all these Protestants out here would be in the first resurrection, and I was showing in that series that that is not the case. Uh, that there are only 144,000. These are the first fruits, no more, no less. Revelation 14:7, and so on. But I don't know where Herbert Armstrong got the idea that was espoused for actually decades in the church. Remember that when he began to study, uh, Loma had, had uh, challenged him on basically one issue, and that was the Sabbath. So he began to study that very carefully, and he proved that it was Saturday, in spite of the fact of all his uh, protestations to the contrary. Uh, he then later got involved with the Church of God Seventh Day, which had some of its roots in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. In fact, prior to the Seventh-day Adventist coming out, it appears that there was a feast-keeping, Sabbath-keeping group, and then Ellen G. White and others uh, got involved and came out of that and Ellen G. White had this uh, theory, uh, which she called the desolate earth theory. And that the earth was going to be completely burned up. 
be nothing left and charred, gone. Uh, and then God would create all things new. Uh, I don't know whether Herbert Armstrong got that from them and probably then through the Church of God Seventh Day who may have been teaching the same thing that Ellen G. White had. Uh, and the earliest I could trace it in Worldwide, uh, apart possibly from Mr. Armstrong, was uh, Leroy Neff. And that I remember a sermon I heard from Ted Armstrong in the 60s where he said there, based on Revelation 21.5, Behold, I create all things new, that the earth was going to be completely burned into a cinder, destroyed entirely, and then he would create a whole new planet. Uh, and that that would be after the great white throne judgment, or the what we called 100-year period, period following the thousand-year millennium. There had always been something that niggled in my mind about whether or not we had the resurrections all clearly or not. So I, I did a study into the Bible, and lo and behold, I found that the Bible didn't support Ellen G. White or the church's teaching on how Christ would return, then there'd be a thousand-year millennium, uh, then the last great day or great white throne judgment day, which would last a hundred years. And then, after that, all humans would have either been changed or gone into the lake of fire, and the earth would be completely burned up and charred, and he would start completely over. That was what we taught. And uh, I found that that is not supported by Scripture. Let's go to Revelation 20, first of all, and see what it says, and then we'll go out from there. We looked at this a little bit, I think, yesterday, uh, where this angel, or this fit man, as uh, Leviticus calls it, came down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain, and laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. I think it makes it pretty clear here what his names are. We don't need to call him Lucifer. Uh, he's not a light bringer anymore, even though at one time he may have been when he was a covering cherub. But he is the serpent, the devil, and Satan, is what God calls him here. Three, three things he calls him in one verse. And he was cast in the bottomless pit and shut up, and a seal set on him, couldn't get out, that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So, uh, not only is he in solitary confinement there, uh, well, probably the demons with him, but they and those of his spirit uh, are confined, and their spirit, their ability to broadcast is shut off because it says they cannot deceive the nations during that thousand years. So obviously there's no access through the air by thought or anything else. That is all cut off somehow by God. And then I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
Revelation 5.10 says we will reign on the earth. So that thousand-year reign is on the earth. But the rest of the dead lived not again till the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15 of there being an order of resurrections and each man in his order. And we're seeing here a difference between a first resurrection and another resurrection later on. So only those who had been put in, say, Hebrews 11, or all those in the category of having been judged righteous who will be in the first resurrection, and it includes those here in the end who were either alive and remained or had been beheaded or killed, uh, in faithfulness, uh, who would be resurrected. Now, Paul again says that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then they, we which remain uh, would go up with them. Of course, he included himself in the we which remained then, and uh, he's one of those who's dead now and will come up first, and then we which remain <laughs> will go up afterward. So, things lasted a little longer than Paul thought they would about 2,000 years, to be more specific. So, uh, John is laying it out here. He says, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years, again, here on the earth. So, uh, in Revelation 21, he promises all kinds of things that they won't have anymore, fear and pain and death and sorrow and so on. So, the second death has no power over them. In other words, they've been changed to immortal. Their spirit beings, the bride of Christ. First resurrection, first fruits. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. So, you have all these people... Uh, Daniel says 100 million who survived the Holocaust at the end of the age. And they will live during the millennium under Christ and his bride's rule. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan is turned loose. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So, from 100 million over a thousand years of breeding, there are going to be a lot of people again. And he's going to gather those mostly Gentile nations, Gog and Magog, and gather them to come against Christ and the Father who will be here, and to make an attempt to again destroy God's throne. Now, why is he released for a little while? Well, through the millennium, we'll see, people will be living a hundred years. You know, the lifespan of man has changed over time. At first, it was around a thousand years, and then after the flood, it was cut almost immediately to 500, and then to 250, and then down to 70. And here it's going to be raised 30, back up to about a hundred. We'll see that in Isaiah 65 a little later on. But these people will have been living and dwelling under Christ's rule all this time, and they will not have had to fight Satan, as you and I have. He will have been gone. 
tied up in prison. So he's released for a short period at the end of that time, and people will have to make a decision. Am I going to continue under Christ's rule, or will I go the way of Satan? Now, if you want to go back in history to Adam and Eve, do you think he'll have much influence? (laughs) He's powerful. Very powerful. And it says he's going to gather the nations from the four corners of the earth. He'll have influence around the world again. And he'll bring them up to battle against God. They went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, or camp the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So they are killed there at the end of the millennium when they uh, submit to the way of Satan. Now at that time, the devil that had deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beasts and the false prophet were, should be were, not are, because they uh, die, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that's Satan's fate, not the beasts and the false prophet's fate, because they were human. But he will not give up his eternal life, and therefore will have to suffer forever and ever, apparently. So, Then I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. So the face of the heavens and the earth fled away, and there was no place for them. Uh, Here is the second resurrection. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So the books would have to be the books of the Bible. And then the book of life, where God writes down the names of all the dead, small and great. He he hasn't lost track of anybody. So small and great could be uh, both unimportant and important, but it could also mean babies, small, and great, mature. And I think that it could have certainly both meanings. Uh, So, the book of life was open, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, that would be the books of the Bible, according to their works. Are works still important? (laughs) People will be judged according to their works. Now, this would have to include all mankind that never had opportunity at truth and an opportunity at salvation. There are many, many abortions, many, many stillbirths, many babies who died right after birth, uh, children who got killed or died from whatever reason or another, and billions and billions of people who lived their entire lives on this earth and never understood God or His truth or anything about Him. And he says that he so loved the whole world that he sent his only begotten Son for all flesh. Right? So that means that 
everybody who has ever lived has to have had a chance by the time this is all over. So it would have to include anybody, small or large, who had ever lived. Or, I think, including even those in the womb who may have died there, who never breathed the breath of life. Otherwise, why would abortion be wrong? You're killing something that is alive. Now, let's use that analogy, then, with us. He says that the birth process of a potential God begins with baptism and a new life, with hands laid on it, but it's a gestation period. We have to live a certain amount of time here on this earth and show God that we will follow His way and not the way of the world and Satan. Now what happens if we have that life truncated, that gestation period, in an unfaithful manner? Uh, we could lose our salvation, but we were having a chance at it. Now that baby, if it's conceived, also has to have a chance at life. And if it's cut off, <clears throat> it didn't have that chance. <clears throat> it was human. It wasn't a dog or a cow when it was in the mother's womb. It was human. So I think if you're going to... Uh, say the abortion is wrong, then you better say that that child has a chance. It'd probably be in the first resurrection. And I think that that understanding gives a lot of women who had miscarriages some hope that they would not otherwise have had. I've had them just break down and cry when they understood that, because that never goes away. It's always there. If you've had a miscarriage, you never forget it. Well, unless you get Alzheimer's and forget everything, but I mean, as, as a normal human being, you will not forget it. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the death, or the grave delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Well, now, if a baby had been born, let's say, and died immediately, how are you going to judge him on his works? He didn't have any. He didn't live long enough to show anything. So, if the small and great are going to be judged by their works, that means they have to live a while. And I think we'll see that they live a hundred years. Uh, back in Isaiah 65, when we get to it. And then they can be judged by their works. How are you and I being judged? From the time God calls us, and we're baptized, we're judged by our works. Uh, from that period on. Whether we live five years or forty or fifty or eighty more years is neither here nor there. Uh, we might die early, but we've had an opportunity to obey God and make the right choices. And I don't think he'll let any of us die until he is pretty well convinced uh, one way or another about us. I've known of people who were killed or died uh, not too long after baptism. Is that a problem? I don't think so. God could have prevented their death. He could have healed them or prevented an accident or whatever. And they would have lived longer and had a longer time to show more. 
But what if he saw their character, their mind, the changes, and the transformation that they were making, and says, okay, I approve that one. Go ahead and let them die. The death of my saints is precious to me. Got another one in the sack ready to be resurrected in the first resurrection. Now, if you were about to be in an automobile accident and he hadn't seen enough out of you, he might prevent that so that he has get a little longer look. Who knows exactly how he does it? I don't know. I'm just, uh, in a sense, speculating on that. But the point is, everybody has to be judged by their works. Whether that's over a short period or a long period of time is up to God. But if apparently a hundred years in general for those who come up in the last great day. And let's see that in, uh, in John 7. You know, Leviticus 23 tells us that we're to keep the feast seven days and on the last great day, the eighth day, that there's to be a holy convocation. Not one on the seventh day of the feast. Uh, it ends, and then the eighth day is the holy convocation and the Sabbath, which we're on today. And we're all familiar with that. But here in John 7, verse 37, Christ says something very important. In the last day, that great day of the, the feast, so he calls it the last great day. Emmanuel stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, which flows through us like living water. But the key here is that throughout history, so far with man, you can only go to God by invitation. John 6:44 again. No man can come to me except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So the vast majority of people out here are deceived by Satan. They don't know the true God. They don't know history. They don't know much of anything. And he calls out of these billions a few that he gives the truth. And only by invitation... But notice the period of time that he's speaking of here. He gives meat in due season. The last great day of the feast, he says, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So he's throwing it open not just to special invitation, but to any and everybody. Now that's what we just read there in Revelation 20. The dead, small and great, rise physically, and they have a period of time then to be judged by their works. <clears throat> and any and everyone can come. And in fact, in Zechariah 4, he says if they don't come, they won't get any rain. They have to come keep the feast, which is part of worshiping him. So, <clears throat> they all have this chance during that time pictured by the time after the millennium. You see... The first resurrection when Christ returns, and only those who are left over from the Holocaust live into the millennium and breed and have children during that time, but the rest of the dead live not until that time was over. After Satan's released and has his chance to uh, deceive, 
then you see the thrones and the small and great rising to have their opportunity at works. So the last great day does picture that second time of resurrection to physical life at that time so that they can be judged by the works that they produce as they grow up or during that period of time of life that they do have then. Now, <clears throat> let's go to Isaiah 65. In the context here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with, but uh, in Isaiah 1 through 11 and 12, you're talking about that time when the Assyrian is still around and cutting off nations, not a few, and there's still a great deal of confusion and war and trouble going on, and even toward the end of, of Isaiah 11, he says that he's going to do another gathering a second time after the nature of the animals has changed. He says that. And then it shows more trouble uh, afterward. So that period of time of the microcosm of the millennium has to occur during the time of the two witnesses and the gathering to Zion while the times of the Gentiles are going over the rest of the world and you and I, if we're among those, will be there to witness that God is God and that God has blessed us in this way. In all those scriptures that we've read through the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets about him turning his face back to us and blessing us, as in the Garden of Eden, as Isaiah 55 says, that it will be like the Garden of Eden. Well, that was before there were thorns and thistles. That's when the animals were all right. And that's speaking of the time when we're uh, still here on the earth before Christ returns. So he gives us Edenic or millennial conditions for a short while. And only at Zion, the only place, because he says his word will come out from Zion. God has picked a very inspiring, beautiful area for the setting of that, that the world will look to. So, here in the end of Isaiah, though, it talks, uh, chapter 60, Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the eternal has risen upon you, and how darkness will cover the earth, but they'll see the light and the brightness of Christ arising. Now, he is going to arise and do a great work at the end, and here in chapter 62, he says he's going to cause desolation and Jerusalem is going to begin to be restored after being desolate for many generations in chapter 61 and verse 4. And he says here that he'll call you by a new name in, in verse 2 of chapter 62. Well, where do we see that? Revelation 2 and 3. I'll give you a new name. So he's talking here at the end of Isaiah, not of the time when we're still here on the earth, but at a time when he resurrects us and gives us a new name. And that's when the new heavens and the new earth are, as we shall see. Uh, 
He says in verse 11, Behold, the eternal is proclaimed to the end of the world. Say you to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. His reward is with him and his work before him. Now, where do we see that quoted? Revelation 11. Right after the two witnesses die, three and a half days later, the first resurrection, and it says it's time for the prophets and others to receive their reward, and he is coming, and his reward is with him. So, here, he's not speaking of the conflict still going on in the world like he was in Isaiah 11. That's premillennial. What he is setting the stage for here is the first resurrection, us reigning with Christ a thousand years, and having our new name. That's the context and setting of the end chapters of Isaiah. When all of this around us uh, is going to be gone. Verse cha- chapter 64 uh, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow down at your presence. And when the melting fire burns, the fire causes the waters to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. So, it's speaking of, again, the time when Christ comes. And he says he's going to rend the heavens. Now, this sounds pretty strong here, doesn't it? The melting fire burns... The fire causes the waters to boil. He says he's going to burn the earth with fire. I admit that. But when is the question? And is it a total burning? Or is it symbolism that he uses and the drama? Because he says that he will, he will change us like you purify silver under great heat and pressure. Does that mean he's going to boil us like frogs in four or five, six hundred degree heat or nine hundred degree heat in order to uh, to uh, refine us? No, it's just an analogy that we will be put under great heat and pressure to get us to be what he wants us to be. That helps get rid of the sin and the wrong thought is when he puts spiritual pressure on us. That's what trials, tribbles, troubles, tribulations are all about. And that's what's coming. So when he speaks of rending the heavens and boiling water, does that mean that all the earth, all the seas are going to boil? There wouldn't be anything left. If they all boiled, how long would you last in boiling water? Not very long. Nor would any inhabitants of the earth. So we'll see in a minute that it doesn't, does not, even though this language is used, indicate total destruction of the earth and it all being burned to a crisp, and certainly not after the great white throne judgment. Anyway, let's go on to chapter 65. He says, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. He says, on the last great day, does he not? If any man wants to come, let him come. Here he says, I'm sought of them that hadn't asked for me. From found of those that sought me not. 
So he has to be generally available then at this period that we're beginning to talk about here in Isaiah 65. He said, I have spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people, which walks in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. So he says, I've tried to get their attention, and it hasn't worked. But just before that, he says, they are going to change and begin to come. But up to this point, it hasn't worked. A people that provoked me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificed in the gardens and burned incense on their altars of bricks, in other words, idolatry, and eat swine's flesh and bring abominable things in their vessels, things that God doesn't sanctify, would say, Stand by yourself, come not near to me, for I am holier than you. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all the day. So he's reached out, he's punished, and yet people are so self-righteous that they look down on others. I'm holier than you. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your father together, says the Eternal, who have been idolatrous. Thus says the Eternal, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. He says 90% of those that he's called here at the end will go into the tribulation, but for the ones who are faithful and true, they will not all be destroyed. Isaiah 6 says 10%. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and my elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. So the period he's talking about here is a time when people will still be around. We'll see what time he's talking about here in a little bit. Uh, And it'll be a, a good place for the herds to lie down for my people that have sought me. But you you are they that forget or forsake the eternal, that forget my holy mountain to prepare a table for that troop and that furnish the drink offering to that number, I'll number you to the sword. <laughs> the ones that won't follow him will die. Verse 13, Therefore thus says the eternal God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, and you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. So he's talking about here of a time when all judgments haven't been made, right? Because some will be blessed and some will not be blessed. My servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And you shall leave your name for a curse to my chosen. For the eternal God shall slay you and call his servants by another name. So there's still blessing and cursing being done here. He's going to call us by another name at this time. We'll be resurrected and be there to rule. When? Verse 16 that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he that swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from my eyes. 
So he's talking about a time when our troubles will go away, that he will bless us. Revelation 21, that's when the new heavens and new earth come, and no more crying, no more tears, once we're changed to spirit. And that's at the before the millennium begins. So that's the context then that verse 17 is introduced. Now this, from 17 on down, through uh, about verse 20, is what Ellen G. White or Leroy Neff or somebody in the church uh, used to teach that uh, the new heaven and new earth would come after the last great day or that final judgment of the small and the great and the earth would be burned up at that time. Let's see if that holds true. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. So there's your context. There's your time element. And the former things shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now you can see that in Zechariah 14 and prior to that actually. When Jerusalem is a a joy, not a desolation of many generations, as we saw in, I think, chapter 61. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall no more be an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed." So a judgment is made here of people who are either sinning or not sinning, which sounds like Revelation 20, the small and great stand and are judged by the books, by their works. Now, there's where worldwide stopped. You never heard the rest of this read on the last great day. Maybe verse 25. Because it created a problem or maybe they just quickly read over it and just simply didn't get what it was saying. That may have been done at times. So it says here, They shall build houses and inhabit them. So during the new heavens and new earth, they'll be building houses and living in them. According to old worldwide teaching, the new heavens and the new earth, there wouldn't be children being born, there wouldn't be, well, there would be life going on. Uh, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, hundred years. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now, it's not talking about the bride, because she will be already changed when Christ returns. This is talking about those people who have turned to him. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal, and their offspring with them. So during the new heaven and new earth, it's talking about the seed being produced and offspring, babies being born. We said all those people would be resurrected there in Revelation 20, small and great, live a hundred years, and then all judgment would be over. 
There wouldn't be any babies being born then because you had to put an end to it somewhere. But here, he's introduced the new heavens and the earth, and he's saying that conditions are going to be good, but babies will still be being born during the new heavens and new earth. Now what it says? Hadn't changed the subject so far. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. It's not that way now, but it will be during the millennium. Then he, he reiterates the same conditions we read about the microcosm of the millennium in Isaiah 11, still during the tumult, that during the new heavens and the new earth, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and thus shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. So the new heavens and the new earth are going to have the same conditions as the millennium. Uh, very clearly. Now, if you don't quite buy that yet, let's go to chapter 66 and verse 22, because he refers to the new heavens and the new earth again. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain. So, what does seed do? It produces plants, or produces children in this case. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh." So during the new heavens and new earth, you still have flesh coming before God. And we said that, that you'd rise and, be, and live a hundred years. So flesh would still be coming. But it was supposed to be after the millennium was over and all these people were the only thing around. <coughs> but that's not the case here. It says you'll look upon the carcasses of the men that transgressed. What does he say he's going to do? He's going to kill them off. And they'll go around finding dead bodies for a long time, months and months. So in the new heavens and the new earth, those carcasses are going to be around. That's at the beginning of the millennium, not the beginning of the new heavens and new earth. The beginnings of the new... I mean, uh, not the beginning of the last great day is what I meant. There, the small and great all will be resurrected. And those carcasses will be. Because <coughs> they were killed at the Holocaust at the end of this age. And when the millennium begins, their bodies are still going to be out there and you set up a flag where you, where you find a body for a long time. So during the new heavens and new earth, there's still these bodies around. They haven't been resurrected yet. They've got to be buried. They'll stay there <coughs> until the last great day. So the new heavens and new earth begin at the beginning of the millennium, not afterward. Let's see in Zechariah 14, some corroborating scripture. Now, I know most of you know this, but sometimes it's easy to forget because we've been taught something for the last 30, 40 years 
erroneously. Here he's talking about Christ returning and putting his feet on the Mount of Olives in verse 4. And how it'll be split. <coughs> and it's talking about the day of the Lord when he returns, right? Sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, it's split. And it shall be, verse 8, in that day at the return of Christ. That day, not a thousand years later. That living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. Where do you read that? Revelation 21. Uh, no, actually beginning of chapter 22. Where he says that the living waters will go out for the healing of the nations. Well, that's right here in Zechariah. Is at the day or at the time that Christ returns. Worldwide tried to teach us that Revelation 21 was after the millennium and after the last great day and after the earth had been turned to cinders and then the throne of God would come down and the waters, living waters would come out from the throne. This says in the context of his return. It goes on down to talk about how the eternal, verse 9, shall be king over all the earth uh, and there shall be one Lord, and His name one. Talks about the former sea and the and uh, hinder sea, and at the end of verse eight, uh, Jerusalem used to have a sea on either side, in the place that I would believe is the true original Jerusalem. The lake beds are there, where that water used to be. There's no such thing in the Middle East. There's no there's no pool or cavity or lake bed anywhere around there. It's it's up on some rocks, and it's just rocky all around, and there's no seabed, no lake bed. But the Bible speaks of it. <clears throat> and at the time that the living waters come out, he'll be king over all the earth. The earth is still here. And then those who fight against it will be consumed away, in verse 12. So there's still people around who have not had their opportunity at salvation who will deny Christ when he returns. And they'll have their eyeballs fall out and their flesh will consume away. They'll have their chance later, the last great day. And if you don't come up to keep the feast, uh, you'll have no rain. Now let's go to Isaiah 24, because this is the key scripture that Ellen G. White used to show that the earth will be completely destroyed and burned up. And we, we adopted that. But let's notice her proof scripture. Behold, the Eternal makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Now, it's empty, he says, but there's still inhabitants there at the end of verse 1. It shall be as with the people, so with the priests, as with the servants, so with the... Every, it's going to affect everybody. Uh, verse 3, the land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the eternal has spoken this word. Now, she used verse 3. Does that mean then that every living individual is utterly emptied and utterly spoiled? It says, the earth mourns and fades away, the world languishes and fades away, the haughty people of the earth do language. There's still people around at this point in verse chapter 24. The earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they've transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and broken the covenant. 
Therefore has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Now, pretty well emptied, but a few men left. She left out that verse. She didn't quote it at all. She wanted it to be a doctrine that the earth was totally desolate and no man left. So she just simply left out the ones that said that there's a few people left. I can go over there and empty the, a glass, and there's a little left in it. Let me use a better analogy. i got a pot over there that we put our chicken feed in. And I can go out there and empty it to the chickens. And pretty well throw it all out. But every last time, there's a bunch of greasy stuff that sticks to the bottom and to the sides, and I can't get it all poured out. You have to go wash it to get them all out. So he's saying, the earth's going to be dumped, but there's a few men left. Not everybody. And Ellen G. White was dishonest. Uh, says things are going to be bad. The city of confusion is broken down in verse 9. Uh, verse 13, When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. You can shake an olive tree till you're blue in the face, but there'll still be a few left on it. There's another scripture that says that. Uh, verse 18, It shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And it says in verse 19, The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. Now, utterly broken down and clean dissolved does not mean that it's completely gone. Because it says the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. So most people will be dead when God gets through shaking this earth. There's about seven billion of us now, and he tells us in Daniel a hundred million will be left to be judged during the millennium. Well, that's pretty well emptied, isn't it? From seven billion to a hundred million, that's way, way over 90% that will die. So in that day, at the time the earth is reeling and burned up and boiled, whatever, as we read in Isaiah 64, was it? Uh, that there's still people on the earth, and they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when the Eternal of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his ancients gloriously. So, when Christ is reigning with his bride of 144,000 on the earth in Mount Zion with his ancients in glory, there will still be kings on the earth and they will be imprisoned if they won't obey God and they won't have any reign if they don't come to the feast. But they'll still be around. 
So everything written in Isaiah 24 shows that there will be terrible destruction, fire and, you know, all kinds of things, but people will survive. <clears throat> now, Peter quotes this, Second Peter 3. So this is what he's referring to when he writes what he writes. There's something else we can debunk here, too, and that's this uh, young earth theory that uh, Ken, what's his name, and others have put forth. And it isn't so. Second uh, Peter 3. I'll get there. You're already there. He says here, uh, The second epistle, beloved, I now write to you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you be may, may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he's saying, I want you to remember what Christ said, and I want you to remember what the prophets said. One of the prophets was Isaiah, and he wrote Isaiah 24, among other things. It says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. So he's setting this thing at the end of the age, okay? That's the time setting. And the events that are to follow here are about the end of the age. And they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all can think, things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So they're saying, Things are just going on and on and on, and nothing's changed. There is no resurrection. The Sadducees said, uh, what do you mean God's going to do this, that, and the other thing? Well, Peter is going to explain to them that God is going to fulfill what Isaiah said in chapter 24, among other places. And they just say, well, ever since the creation... For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth uh, should be said consisting of water and in the water. And even my margin says that's what the Greek says. So there are those today who purport that the whole earth as we know it today was all created in a week. Seven days. And Kent Hogan is his name, had a whole series of tapes showing the young earth theory. Well, Peter says that's not so. What did it say in Genesis 1 1 and 1 2? That in a beginning, he brought the land out of the water. So when the creation of Genesis 1 1 and 1 2 and on occurred, there was already water, and it was on the earth. And the water covered the earth, and he brought the land out of the water. So he didn't start with a new earth, a new planet. He simply brought the land out of the water so that it appeared, so he could put a Garden of Eden and mankind there. He didn't give, we, we didn't, weren't created as fish. He had to have land for us to be on. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's, he's debunking the New Earth theory right here. 
saying that they're ignorant of the word of God, showing that there was just water, and it consisted of water with the earth under the water. And he brought it out. So he says, they're all messed up on their idea of creation, and they're all messed up on what's going to happen after that, as he goes on to explain. They didn't want to accept that God brought the land out of the water. Why do you think there's fossils on top of 12,000-foot mountains? It was all underwater for... Could have been millions, could have been billions of years. Who knows? Doesn't say. It just says he brought the earth out of the water. Well, it had been underwater. Uh, well, who knows what there was back then? Were there prehistoric creatures? Were there fish? Were there all kinds of things uh, there at that time? that might have been destroyed and had become fossilized and so on. I mean, they, may, they find fossils of some really strange-looking stuff, don't they? I don't know. But Satan had been ruling over a world of light for a period of time. And when he rebelled, there was war in heaven. And a lot of things changed. So the, the stars and the planets that are still in chaos, I mean, look at the moon, look at the planets. They, they look like they've been pocked and pitted by some pretty heavy war. And the earth looked like that, apparently. But it had been a creation before that had water on it. And the land disappeared. It doesn't appear that that was the case with Mars and the moon. Uh, they're not covered with water. Planet Earth had had something here before. And he renewed it and restored it. Didn't recreate it, and he's not going to again. We've polluted it. He says, woe to those that pollute the Earth there in Revelation. And he says he's going to restore it. He's not going to burn it all up and throw it away. He's going to restore it will reign on the earth, and he will reign forever on the earth. So Peter says, wake up to what was going on back then. Then he says in verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are, not, which are now in his lifetime, by the same word are kept in storage, reserved to fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So it was destroyed once when Satan rebelled and had to be restored. Now he says it's reserved for fire, which Isaiah 24 says. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, and he's not slack according to his promise. These things are going to happen after 7,000 years, or after 6,000, and the 7,000 will be a time of peace and prosperity. Uh, and he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now that ties in with the last great day when all those who have never had a chance at salvation will be resurrected to physical life and given that chance. It also shows that those who survive the burning of the earth in Isaiah 24, the hundred million, will also have their chance to come to repentance at that time. So everybody gets a chance. But the day of the Lord, this isn't 1,100 years later, the day of the Lord, the events leading to Christ returning and His return, is the time of the day of the Lord. 
evidenced by many scriptures. So he's talking about that time here when there will be fire on the earth. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, the coming of Christ? the day of the Lord, wherein, or at the time of, the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. He's quoting Isaiah 24, which says some will remain. Daniel says a hundred million will remain. So he's speaking of that time when Christ returns, that all kinds of pressure and conflagration and destruction will occur. Seas made blood, fish killed, on and on it goes when you read about the seven last plagues. Right during the time of the day of the Lord. That's when he's referring to. And Isaiah doesn't say that they'll all be wiped out. Now what did Peter say up here? Listen to what the prophet said and what Christ himself said. When Christ returns, he is going to resurrect the righteous... And some will remain to be judged, and then in the hundred-year period following the millennium, everyone will have a chance that has not had one before as a human being. Now, nevertheless, notice this, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blemish. When do we need to be that way? When he returns, the day of the Lord. And he ties that in with the new heavens and the new earth. Unquestionably. It's a time he's talking about. Let's wrap this up then. Uh, well, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 before I go to Revelation. 2 Corinthians uh, 5. Interesting statement Paul makes here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, how do you be in Christ? You repent, you are baptized, have the laying on of hands, and then you walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. So then you are in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, did you, in ten seconds in which you were under the water, become totally different? Did you go down physical and come up physical? Yeah, you did. But symbolically, you're a totally new creation. You're not walking in the flesh anymore. You're walking in the Spirit, right? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So Paul makes a statement here about our new life in Christ, still the same physical that we were, about all things having passed away. 
Now, if I were to take that statement completely literally apart from this analogy, I would have to think that the whole earth and everything had passed away. All things. So when Peter says it like that, and Isaiah says it like that, the time element is when Christ returns and a hundred million will be there, and Isaiah 24 says, few inhabitants left and the kings of the earth are still around in the new heavens and the new earth. So Paul's showing us that it doesn't have to mean that everything that is, is dissolved. Because here is an analogy about a new life, and you continue, but in a different way. The earth is going to continue, but in a different way. Same thing. Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Same thing we saw in Isaiah 65, 66, uh, 2 Peter 3 where the new heavens and new earth are talked about. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So they used the no more sea to show that the earth had been totally recreated. No, you go back to uh, Ezekiel 47, verse 8 and on, and Ezekiel there is talking about when there is no more sea. And he goes on to explain that the sea didn't go away, the salt went away. So the, earth, the water is purified and made fresh, but there'll still be salt water in some of the back eddy areas, but the, the water overall will be made saltless. And that's no more sea. <laughs> the sea is salty. A lake is not salty. And that's still during uh, the millennium that, that uh, Ezekiel is talking about. Because Ezekiel's temple has never been built, and Ezekiel 40 through 48 says that it will be built, uh, and yet here in Revelation 21, when the new heavens and the new earth are here, there's no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb or the temple of it. So there will be another temple built, but it won't be uh, during the millennium because the new heavens and the new earth are here during the millennium. And there's no temple. So Ezekiel's temple still got to be built between now and the time Christ returns. And it has to have fresh water around it. It says out of it will come water as well to cleanse. So it's a total microcosm of what shall be later when the Father and the Son come at the beginning of the millennium. Remember, Peter said, at the time of the day of the Lord, the new heavens and new earth would come down. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That has to be at the beginning of the millennium, because that's when the bride is resurrected and goes and is with Christ forevermore. And she is always with him, as 1 Thessalonians 4.17 shows. So, he's going to reign on the earth. So she's the bride adorned and comes to the earth with her husband. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and he will wipe away their tears, and so on. And he says, I make all things new. Well, isn't that what Paul said of us? When we come up out of the water and have hands laid on, 
All things are made new, and everything else has passed away. A whole new life, a whole new world. But we're still us. Um, and anyone can come to the fountain of the water of life freely. That'll be through the millennium and the great white throne judgment, that anybody can come, as he said, on the last great day of the feast there in John. But the fearful and unbelieving and so on will have their part in the second death. So this is the period of time in those resurrections when they have their opportunity. <coughs> and there came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. They just administered the seven last plagues while Christ was on the sea of glass marrying his bride and having his year with her as Deuteronomy 24, 5 says he has to have. He's not going to work during that time. Then the angel that had poured out the seven last plagues, just finished, says, Come here and I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he showed me this holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down, and then he describes it. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb and the temple are the temple of it. Now, we had been taught before that during the new heavens and the new earth there wouldn't be any people around. That they, the millennium was finished, the last great day was finished, and Everybody was spirit or dead by then. Well, here he shows us, says in verse 1, the new heaven and new earth comes down. The Father and the Son come with it. The city had no need of the sun or the moon because they light it up. Verse 24, but watch. The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. They're still around during the new heavens and new earth. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day and night. And the glory and honor of the nations will come to it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there'll still be people who are defiled and filthy and abominable around during the new heavens and new earth, but they won't be allowed in the city. It's Christ and the Father's reign during the millennium is when it is. And he showed me this pure water coming out for the healing of the nations. So the new heavens and new earth are here, but the nations haven't all been healed yet. These living waters are symbolic of the Father and the Son's Spirit, but literal water coming out to heal the nations during the new heavens and new earth. Now, if this is after the millennium and after the great white throne judgment and the earth's been burned to a crisp, there aren't any nations left to be healed. So this is clearly in the new heavens and new earth that the healing of the nations occurs. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God shall be in it. And they'll see his face, and no need for uh, light, he reiterates. And then he says to come quickly, and his reward is with him in verse 12. And blessed are they that do his will and have right to the tree of life. And they will enter in through the gates into the city. So the city's coming down. And those who have qualified will be in it. Says just the uh, the bride up here. 
For without, outside the city, during the new heavens and new earth, are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. And he says, then, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that hears say, come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So this is the time of the millennium and the great white throne judgment when salvation is open to everybody and the bride will be there to help convert the nations because they haven't been converted yet and the earth hasn't been burned up and it ain't going to be because the new heavens and the new earth will have already been here and there will still be people that need converted and nations that need healed. We were all wet. (laughs) in our view, that came probably from Ellen G. White, who was a false prophetess. Um, I hope that we grasp and understand that, that there is a wonderful time coming for us, to use as an example, with conditions of Eden before Christ returns, and then when he does and sets his mouth foot on the Mount of Olives, the new heaven and new earth are about to begin And the Father will come down in the new Jerusalem and water will come out to heal the nations and the Father and the Son will be the temple of it and we will be the bride of Christ to help convert the people during the millennium and then later as they come up in the great white throne judgment. So that's what this day is about is that last period of time. And it doesn't say anywhere that in the last great day will be a hundred years. It's talking about the new heaven and new earth there in uh, Isaiah 65 when it talks about the baby and the older person dying at age 100. It's talking about the beginning of the millennium. Now, I would assume that the last great day would probably be given the same amount of time that they were given in the millennium, but it doesn't say that specifically. But since the millennium and the last great day are part of the new heaven and new earth, I would assume that it's a hundred year period as well. Because you during that time you won't have be babies being born like you are during the millennium, which is part of the new heavens and new earth. You, you do have to cut it off somewhere. So the babies and those who were old when they died will all be given a hundred years to be judged by their works at the last great day. Last great day is nearly over, so let's stop. I hope you all have who are traveling, have a very safe trip home, and God be with you, and I do appreciate all that you have done to make this feast a very peaceful, cohesive, wonderful fellowship time. I haven't heard of any bad attitudes. You've kept them very well hid. (laughs) Uh, I'm jesting, of course, but no, it's been, in my view, it's been very peaceful and wonderful, and I, I think that we're here to uh, to picture the millennium of God. And we've certainly had plenty of food and drink and plenty of good fellowship. And I hope fellowship with the Father and the Son in heaven because we're here also to picture uh, our oneness and our closeness with God and to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, which was the purpose of it. So I hope that we've fulfilled all those things in the way that we should And God bless. Uh, Thank you for being so helpful and cooperative and 
my job's really been easy except for having to be sure I had something to say. But other than that, everything else has just been wonderful and smooth. So thank you and Godspeed.